Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Good evening, children of the night. I am Stephen Kilpatrick, and I will be your host for the night. Come in, get settled, pour yourself something to drink, find something to eat, and we'll get started. Before we dive into business as usual, I'd like to let our listening audience know that we're putting out a call for an editor to help out around here at the Nook. I won't inject the details of that right into the middle of things, but if this caught your ear, at the absolute end of this episode, I'll include details. Tonight will be one big bite of fiction. Our story for the evening will be Gary Fry's The Familial, weighing in at just under an hour. So Mahler, the ink black cat of the nook, and I will be keeping you just a bit longer than usual. Gary Fry has a first-class degree and a Ph.D. in psychology, though his first love is literature. He lives in Dracula's Whitby, literally around the corner from where Bram Stoker was staying while thinking about that legendary character. He has been writing seriously for about ten years, despite dabbling with prose since his teens. His first sale was a rather grand one, a short story, both and, to Ramsey Campbell for inclusion in the international anthology Gathering the Bones. Gary has had a number of books published, including short story collections, novellas, and novels. His first collection included an introduction by Ramsey Campbell in which Gary was described as a master. All these books reflect Gary's preference for page-turning narratives, complex thematic development, and compelling characterization. Gary has a deep interest in psychology and philosophy. Indeed, related concerns inform his fiction. He likes to think that every faucet of his thought can be strung together by reading his assorted pieces, each adding to the whole a vision, if you like, and if that doesn't sound too pretentious. But he's never been one to flinch away from ambition. Finally, Gary wishes to welcome all to his presence on the web and may be contacted at gary.fry at virgin.net. And with that, tonight's story. I'd never really known my father. He died when I was four or five. I could never get Mum talking about this long enough to endure which. All she'd say was that it was some form of car accident, that booze had probably been involved, that he hadn't been around much anyway, so I shouldn't think I was missing out on anything. And could we talk about something else now, please? 
but my seven or eight-year-old self had yet to learn about tact, so I just went on and on. What had he looked like? Eventually, she found me a photograph in the loft of that rented terrace we shared in one of the grubbier regions of Bradford. It showed a chubby man in a pub, a pint before him grimacing into camera. I kept this inside the cover of my favourite book, a dense collection of ghost stories. And I was perhaps nine when I asked a final, ostensibly innocent question about my dad. He must have had something good about him, because you lived with him and you both had me, didn't you? He was a good provider, my mum had replied, and that was an end to it. She'd been tired from another shift at work, and by this time I'd begun to develop some of that crippling sensitivity. Well, shyness, actually. That has made every engagement so difficult since. Well, life went on uneventfully. I got by at school, despite never having what most of the others had. Expensive toys, regular holidays, both parents. My mum worked hard at the catalogue warehouse and was even made head telephonist on my 10th birthday. We celebrated by ordering a rare takeaway pizza. That's one of my most treasured memories, just the two of us locked away together. But it never happened again because a few months later she met Arnold Mock. Sarah Glover was a very proud person. After her disastrous marriage, she'd even reclaimed her maiden name. Though I was left the way I'd been christened, Richard Keane. She was tallish and slim, her pale skin colliding with short, dark hair. I'd describe her as quiet, secretive. She'd often write in a very deep notebook that she never left about our tiny house. We lived modestly on what she could afford, while saving in other areas. She'd cut my hair with big scissors, encourage my fondness for reading rather than playing all the computer games that were taking the market and establishing friends among other children. We knew few people, and that was okay until I'd grown a little older. Something was missing, possibly by that time for the pair of us, and it was this void that was filled by the black and white man. I refer to him in this way, since that was how he struck me when we were first introduced. He resembled an old photograph, charcoal suit, grey hair, flesh as bland as dust. He might have stepped out of a classic film, one of the ancient horrors I enjoyed, its monster in reassuringly unconvincing costume. By what limited account I was offered, Mum had met him at the office during his assessment of the company's finances. They'd been out together for a few drinks, getting on well enough to believe they might have a future. I was surprised, yet not angered by the news. Whenever I stayed at my grandma's, I'd assumed Mum was putting in extra hours to meet both our needs, so I suppose I was a bit envious. Nevertheless, this didn't last long, because, after Arnold Mock had driven us to his home, at which it had already been decided the three of us would live, I was certainly impressed. The property was a big detached on the outskirts of the city. It reminded me of a building in one of my favourite gothic tales, shadowy eaves, peaked gables, elaborately arched windows. Inside was every bit as lugubrious. Either the bulbs were dying or had been bought to deliberately mimic candlelight. I remember my mum giving Arnold a small hug the first show of affection I'd ever seen her express to a male other than myself. That made me feel strange, though I was easily able to repress the sensation when, at the owner's uncertain behest, I went upstairs to explore what would become my huge bedroom. I was too young to articulate my feelings, too excited by our suddenly transformed lives to spare the issue, anything but perfunctory thought. Over the following months, I got to know slightly more about the chap who that year, my 11th, would become my stepfather. A wary, reserved individual in his mid-forties, he had no family of his own. He was a well-paid accountant with a big car and was very generous. I'd heard him trying to persuade my mum that she needn't continue to work, 
though for some reason she persisted in doing so. On the evenings of her shifts, Arnold would look after me, though I have few explicit recollections. I think he was uncomfortable in my presence, a factor hardly eased by my own innate reticence. I was rather clingy to my mum in the early stages, and perhaps Arnold had detected that. So there the two of us were, each unsure of the other and with a hapless mediator, striving too hard to keep the house happy. My mum shouldn't have worried back then. It was only later that the situation grew wrought. Maybe it was the amount of money he'd already spent on me, and which I'd gratefully accepted, which persuaded him to suggest that I go to a boys' grammar school. I hadn't been doing particularly well at the local comprehensive. Could it be that Arnold, who was very intelligent and had a library to put my bookcase to shame, was embarrassed by this rather portly, academically average teenager? However, this might have been my paranoiac reading. I'd begun puberty at twelve, my voice breaking, crinkly hairs developing, moods a many a day, and had withdrawn even more into myself. Frequently, I'd sit on my bed with my favourite book open, staring at the photograph of the man in the pub, and wondering why he wasn't here today, helping me through this difficult period in whatever complicated way I required. I certainly held nothing against Arnold Mock for trying to assume that role. It was rather the way he went about it which was troubling, using financial methods as a substitute for direct affection. In any case, the upshot was that after my 13th birthday, I started studying for my GCSEs at a public institution on the far side of Bradford. Mum couldn't drive and Arnold worked in Leeds, so it was he who willingly conveyed me each morning to the grounds of the imposing establishment. It was good to arrive in the purring Jaguar, though I hated the silences which accompanied the trip. All I'd ever see were his gloved hands twitching on the steering wheel while simultaneously enduring his nervous attempts to get me to talk about anything which took my interest. The trouble was that I only enjoyed scary fiction, and he was more into the hard stuff like philosophy and psychology. He had journals delivered from all over the world, had quite a stretch of them in his upper shelves. So, at our one point of convergence, reading, there were also impassable differences. School was okay. I made several new friends, none of them rough like at my previous establishment. Some of the more aloof pupils kept their distance on account of my cruder accent, but there were larger terrors to negotiate, the most unsettling of which was changing for game lessons. I'd grown conscious of my body for two reasons. First, because that's how teenagers are. Narcissistic, I believe it's called. Had I picked up this term from Arnold? And second because I'd begun to fill out, get sturdier, develop a gut. I was sure the other boys watched and sniggered as I undressed, to such a degree that I often ended up looking back at them scrupulously. Although the fact hadn't occurred to me at the time, I imagine many suspected I was gay. Yet nothing could be farther from the truth. What with my mum's job, there'd always been plenty of catalogues lying about the home. It was in these that I made my first acquaintance with sexuality. I found the fair-skinned girls the most attractive. They reminded me of the exotic ghosts in my favourite book, only without any chains and the continental settings. I recall stapling the cover of a horror magazine over a composite of pages I'd snipped from lingerie sections, the better to convince my mum, who often wandered into my bedroom unheralded, that I was merely reading. She must have taken this as some form of encouragement regarding my relationship with her husband because she once left one of his articles on my pillow. I gave this a try. It didn't get very far. It was about dreams and their interpretation, an analysis of how real desires are often represented by approximated imagery. What did this have to do with me? I soon went back to the heavenly figures, long-limbed, slender, Raven Bobs in my homemade compilation. And, around that time, I discovered masturbation. I could manage this delicious act a couple of times a day. Once in the morning, before the two of them awoke, 
and again at night when they were both in bed. That second time I'd listened carefully for movement next door. They'd both ceased discussing me in private. Maybe this had hitherto results in too much arguing and general unease. Indeed, they now appeared to be getting on better than ever. On at least three occasions a week, I'd hear from their room quick, breathless, panting sounds, which had, of course, taken on potent significance since my first blossoming of adult awareness. I was rather disturbed by the thought of my mum penetrated by the affaire Arnold Mark. The man was so withdrawn in all other matters. In any case, while they were up to that, I might do the other. In fact, I only ever feared my stepfather coming in and catching me, and all of this must have been on my mind one evening, since I had a nightmare in which Arnold stepped in with scissors and chopped down at what I'd almost coped to that sweet moment of pleasure. A few years passed in a frenzied blur. I became more cloistered and sullen, none of which helped me out of a trap of loneliness and misery. Some of the boys at school had got girlfriends, and my only experience in relation to the opposite sex was with my mother. She seemed weary at this stage, perhaps as a result of so much striving to draw Arnold and me together, but it simply wasn't going to happen. We took a holiday in Crete, staying in connecting rooms which precluded any of their nocturnal activity. My mum brightened during the fortnight, maybe believing that this trip would do the trick, but I kept my distance. Indeed, I was attracted more to men drinking in bars, the kind I believed to resemble my dad, whose colour photo I'd smuggled abroad inside my anthology. By comparison, Arnold was just a wan negative. It was another six months before our next break, where everything already under subterraneous way reached a hideous conclusion. Several significant events occurred just before our trip to Belgium. I had my 16th birthday and got a rock album from my mum and stepfather. I took my first drink, a pint of cider, served over a meal the three of us struggled through in a city centre restaurant and during which Arnold and I talked together properly for perhaps the first time. It must have been the shock of alcohol that had opened me up, but when we arrived home I was back to my familiar self, turning into bed grimly. While changing for sleep, my vision was still slightly disputed by toxics, and I stared at my nearly adult form in the mirror. I was fat and looked older than my years. I simultaneously hated and liked what I saw. I dug out the picture from the ghost story collection. Before long, I resembled the figure in the pub. That thought made me regret my recent involvement with Arnold Mark, and I went to bed praying that he wouldn't be encouraged. But he was. On the following Thursday, he came home from his office and instructed us to pack for the weekend. We were going on a ferry to Bruges. It was immediately obvious that Mum wasn't keen on the idea. Perhaps by that time she'd had enough of our familial awkwardness and just wished to tread water until I was grown up and independent. Still, the severity of the glance she gave me seemed disproportionate to her husband's unappealing suggestion. I even felt a little sorry for Arnold, finding myself agreeing to his proposal with a manufactured smile. He seemed impervious to the response of his wife, focusing on me instead, and so I immediately fled upstairs to read. It was only some time later that I realised he'd again got his mild-mannered way. At any rate, on Friday evening we were driven to Hull in the Jaguar, and by nightfall were on board of the ferry. My stepfather had another surprise in store for us, this one ostensibly outside of his control. He'd booked us into a family cabin, with just a tiny bathroom in which to change. He explained that he'd only been able to secure a late cancellation, that when we advanced into the public areas, there didn't appear to be a lot of people in the bar lounge, the restaurant, or the shops. Still, we had a pleasant time on what I termed a floating hotel. Arnold laughed at this, an expression which sat uncomfortably on his saturnine features. Mum merely marshalled her attention. I recall thinking that after getting what she wanted, her husband and me, relating on at least amicable terms, she'd now gone all sulky 
ostensibly envious of our companionship. Therefore, with deliberate malice, I moved him further towards Arnold, actually believing that the two of us might become friends. Oh God, how wrong it all went. During three courses from the buffet, I'd supped rather a lot of wine. Mum had taken a glass from the first bottle, and we guys had shared the rest. But then my stepfather ordered another, which we carried through to a seating area, the better to listen to the songs of a lady pianist with dark skin and blonde hair, who, despite being far from my type, I suddenly fancied madly. There were other girls too, fellow passengers in the company of their parents. As the drink took grip, I felt confident enough to approach any of them, though my mum's disapproving gaze held me in my chair. At one stage, I glanced away to see the three of us in a mirrored wall across the room. With the glass in hand and my mature appearance, I resembled my dad more than ever. Was mum seeing this? Arnold was perched beside me, a pallid spectre of a man. I remained silent, and once the wine was all gone and several hours had crept by, I stood and swayed for sleep, my two suffering companions in tow. And that was when my stepfather touched me. It wasn't a good moment. It was only an arm around the shoulder, possibly even loving. Yet I turned on him at once, flinging away the limb. Get off me! I imagined I yelled, or something to the drunken effect of this. You're not him. Never will be. Richard, my mum exclaimed, and this I do remember accurately. She came forwards to offer a hug in order to limit the hurt I was both experiencing and that I might cause. People around us had twisted to watch. Arnold appeared mortified, stringently avoiding my gaze, his bland face burning like an old photo which had been coloured. Indeed, his wife was offering him a dirty look as well. What was her understanding here? Did she blame him for plying me with booze? Whatever the case, the strategy had backfired on all of us, and then suddenly the humiliation was complete. Quite abruptly, the ferry chugging underfoot, I threw up on the carpet, splashing all of our shoes. The following morning I awoke in the narrow bed opposite the double, in which the two of them lay back to back and snoozing. Could I feel any worse? Yes. Nausea burned in my gullet, and I rushed immediately for the bathroom to empty whatever remained inside me into the toilet. After a while, hands were upon me, and I whirled to see my mum stooping in her dressing gown. She dealt with all the mess before fetching a clean set of clothes. Arnold was also awake, though he studiously ignored me. I just wanted to get out of there, to put some distance between myself and so many problems which recently seemed to have multiplied. We were soon taken by coach into the beautiful town of Bruges. I sat alone, a row in front of the obviously fretful couple not speaking or conceding any movement which might have been taken as an invitation for them to communicate with me. I was sorry I hadn't brought along my book. Yes, that collection bearing the photo. In my confused state, I'd left it in my hold-all back in the cabin, but there'd be plenty of opportunity to seek a temporary substitution while browsing the innumerable shops. I had all day to kill and I was determined to do so in my customary, self-focused way. I arranged to wander around on my own and meet them at the coach late afternoon. Mum mediated between her two silent men, awkwardly requesting some money from Arnold, and soon handing this across to me for food and whatnot. Then I went on my way, and they the other. It was a relief, like fleeing my grubby world into a fantasy. The architecture was intense and evocative, Historical building, the great majority in the Gothic style described in my beloved tales, loomed over cobbled lanes, all as dark as dreams or nightmares, their detail every bit as elusive. There were countless churches, whose broad naves frequently birthed nuns on bicycles, heaven's angels, I amused myself by calling them. Around lunchtime, I saw a couple of the pretty girls from the ferry, though of course I hid from them, before continuing to walk alone. After combing several packed, handsome emporiums, I chanced upon a backstreet precinct barred to transport and landmarked by a disused bandstand. And it was here that I came across the perfect outlet for me, a book and wine store. 
The property was one of a row of terraces and three stories high. To each side stood anonymous dwellings, their windows black and grimy, and opposite was a rank of similarly shut up frontages. I was soon standing too close to the entrance to see the windows above clearly, but I was sure I'd seen a shape stir on the upper level. I stepped inside, the better to shut out the seasonal chill. The interior was cool, quiet, dusty, like the atmosphere of the buildings in my favourite stories. There was stock on copious shelves, tombs intermingled with laid-out bottles. What surprised me was the absence of a till point. Yet, more bizarrely, no proprietor was in sight. There was nowhere really for customers to go, save for a bronze spiral staircase on rickety hinges in the far right corner, leading up a floor. Should I risk this? Did the owner even know I was here? Without further hesitation, I began to climb. My head emerged in the next showroom, the play of steps conspiring to face me away from the main stretch of it. Nevertheless, I was able to perceive its character, a smell of mildew, the barky scent of the creaking floorboards, and a light aroma of the crumbling plaster which supported me as I caught my balance in order to examine the new surroundings. There were chains on the floor, presumably left over from a delivery, though their links were thick and rusty, displayed around nothing at all. Had I accidentally drifted into the shop's storage area? But no, here were photographs and frames, all placed on low display blocks made of basic timber and painted haphazardly. Who were these people, all immortalised as static images? The pictures were chiefly black and white prints, colour restricted to just a few pictures of older folk in modern environments. Anachronisms made flesh. They collectively drew my gaze to the left, and that was when I saw her. It was quite a jolt. I'd assumed that I was alone. Perhaps this was because the girl didn't appear to be breathing. The slight body seemed to remain effortlessly alive. She was shorter than me and very slim. She must have been about 13 or 14. She was dressed in a white cotton blouse and dungarees. No socks, just a pair of slip-on sandals which dramatised her small, perfectly formed feet. But it was her skin, creamy and flawless, that claimed most of my scrutiny, even more than the developing ridge of her hips and the budding mounds of breasts beneath stitched denim. Her face shared the contours of a flower head. Her cropped brown hair matched her glistening eyes with heartbreaking singularity. She appeared to be simply watching me, just as I did her. But then suddenly I noticed a doorway beyond her. This one giving on to another flight of steps leading to the third floor. With unsolicited promptness, my gaze switched that way. And despite my attraction to the underage lady of the house, my arousal faltered in response to what I saw beneath the jams. The doorway was high, almost striking the ceiling. The staircase through the opening sloped severely, and on the stripy wallpaper alongside it, there was a huge mirror. From this perspective, its reflection showed me the room above in which a chair was stationed. It was one of those chunky vinyl models, upholstered smoothly with forceful quilting points. The window behind this item of furniture, the one I'd spied briefly from outside, illuminated the single visible side of the seat, and not only that. There was an arm rested on the flat surface of the chair's frame. It was hairy and plump, that of a man undoubtedly. A firm fist grasped the stem of a scooped glass, which had a coppery spirit lapping in its base. As the meaty fingers went about moving the receptacle in a steady, swirling motion, I gazed again at the girl, and discovered immediately that she was offering me such a look of attraction that I froze at once. Indeed, I knew I could do nothing at all to act upon this obvious invitation. The man's hand holding the glass in my peripheral vision prevented me from even contemplating it. I was inexplicably terrified, and anything other than this I was unable to judge, since I instantly wheeled away the juvenile girl a miserable blur, while my mood plunged as I headed out of the exit for the bandstand, never glancing anywhere but in front, my path ahead, and the slow, horrendous voyage back to grisly existence. This had all happened like a peculiar dream, 
and it stayed with me as precisely this, haunting my thoughts, denying everything I experienced henceforward, so much as a modicum of joy. Upon our return home, my life assumed its original pattern. I went back to school to begin the final critical year of my GCSEs. I didn't shine in any subject, though I tried hardest in English. For my coursework, I'd chosen to study the Victorian ghost story and had been required to read various difficult commentaries, most of which were lost on me. They were all about matters which went on beneath the surface of the tales, the political mores that were being subverted, libidinous implications of specific manifestations, even a deconstruction of familial issues. At the end of the academic year, I managed five decent grades and four others which were negligible. I might just successfully have applied to do A-levels, yet my heart wasn't in education anymore. So, without discussing the issue with either my mum or my stepfather, I took the advice of a careers guidance officer by applying for a job at the Central Library in Bradford. Two weeks later, I attended an interview and was offered the post the same day. I began work in November, almost a year after my delicious, dreadful experience in Belgium. I continued to live at the secluded house, somehow negotiating a tense coexistence which drained us all. Arnold Mock hadn't asked for any contribution to the housekeeping from my wage. There had always been plenty of money. However, my mum was certainly unhappy. She'd gone back to writing those private entries in her never-to-be-read-by-others journal. She now looked older than her forty years. Her fine white flesh had begun to appear sallow, and her hitherto slender body rather stick-like. With increasing frequency at night, I'd hear those sex sounds from the next bedroom, as though one of them couldn't get enough of it, but I didn't wish to reflect upon this issue too much. Despite my affluence and freedom since starting work, I'd still met no one I desired to ask out. Oh, there were women at the library, and all either already dating or the wrong sort for me entirely. I simply couldn't get that girl out of my mind. She whom I'd only glimpsed in Bruges. I tried several times to sketch her, to create at least a visual representation of what I lacked, yet I didn't have the artistic ability. It was fortunate that I hadn't been drawing one evening when my mum crept unannounced into my room. She tiptoed swiftly to my bed, presumably to avoid waking her deceptively. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Quiet husband. She seemed distressed, her dark eyes restless, her hair wild. Immediately, I concealed the book I'd been holding open at the picture of my dad. 
By this time I was nearly eighteen. Surely I ought to have grown out of such neediness. However, the photograph had become talismanic. In some nebulous manner, it helped me. But I kept this knowledge a secret. I wouldn't have expected anyone else, least of all my mum, to understand. Richard, do you want to go away? The question confused me. Had you meant alone? Abroad, maybe? Or with her? How do you mean? I replied in a similarly devious whisper. You and me, we could find a place. You have your wage now. I'm still working and we could take on more hours. What do you think? All this was uttered in a fearful hurry. She was stooping in my direction, her nightgown gaping at the neck. Beneath this shroud, I believe she was quite naked, and the potential sight disturbed me. After several seconds, I glanced away, while I sought to marshal an answer. Why would we want to do that? Things are okay here. What had I meant? That Arnold Mock, although not perfect, provided a decent foundation for which we, or at any rate I, might develop. Perhaps this was my mum's dilemma, some form of midlife crisis, little or no future to drag her on. I sympathised and touched her shoulder, where her cotton gown covered her skin. Don't worry, we'll be fine, I explained, at the same moment as I was thinking. Why can't you keep a partner, eh? What's wrong with you? How come all I've got is a piece of coloured card as a replacement for one man, and the black and white presence of another? But then she backed away for the door, the better to conceal her stirring tears. Whatever happens, you'll be provided for, she told me, her voice now a touch louder, and, the, and she went out. The episode has unsettled me, though we all soon lapsed anew into our familial track. A few uneventful months dragged by, and then my birthday was approaching. Arnold had again grown attentive to me. Mum just rattled around in the background. Maybe, since I was becoming older, my stepfather felt he might interact on a man-to-man basis. On one occasion he slapped me on the back, and I let him. He promised me a special present. What on earth did he have planned? On the eve of the big day, he and I stayed up and drank red wine until we were laughing and engaging in inebriated horseplay on the ground floor of his house. Mum had long since departed upstairs. Her face had been a fright as she stepped away. When I arose the morning after, I found the building deserted. I felt strange drifting around the rooms, curiously scared of what I might discover. The bed was empty and unmade. Several scratches on its post were more noticeable now. I'd spotted these years before, but had ascribed no meaning to them other than as natural wear and tear on such an antique piece of furniture. But had the marks become deeper since? A firm knock at the front door interrupted my scrutiny. I descended to the lobby at speed, imagining the two of them out there playing a game with me. They'd be carrying my gift, all smiles and hope for our lives to come. And finally won over by generosity, maturity having softened me, I'd give in, consider us a family. So I opened the door. There was indeed a pair of figures standing in the noon-shadowed portico. Even better, a man and a woman. But these were not the well-known faces of my mum and stepfather. They were both younger and wore helmets. They were police. It had happened this way. My parents, at any rate, that was what the constables called them, had been travelling on a Leeds to Bradford dual carriageway when their car had run off the road and plummeted into a shopping complex many feet below. The vehicle had crumpled on impact, killing both occupants instantly. The small dashboard cutting into them before crushing the only two seats into the cramped luggage compartment behind. But how could this be, I'd asked dazedly, when the family car was a huge four-door Jaguar? Not so, the uniform chap had explained, although identification found on the bodies had been that of Mr. and Mrs. Mock, their transport was a compact sports saloon, a brand new model bearing that year's registration. My birthday present. When the officers were leaving, the woman turned to me and said, 
were dreadfully sorry, Mr. Mark. And although the thought had at once crossed my mind, I didn't correct her. I learned later that Arnold had bought the £8,000 hatchback a week earlier. He and my mum had been riding back from the showroom. During our drunken fracas the previous night, Arnold had promised to give me driving lessons, and now I knew why. The poor bastard. For some reason, I couldn't even start to assimilate the death of my mother. I was numb for several days, and stayed off work a fortnight while I arranged the funeral. The event itself was a subdued affair. Few people attended because we'd known hardly anybody. After the burial, side by side in the local churchyard, we ventured to the dark old house and drank alcohol all afternoon to strip ourselves of the savage injustice of the accident. And it must have been too many neat sherries which prompted my aunt, my mum's sister, who I hadn't seen since childhood, to slump beside me on the couch and sputter such nonsense. I wouldn't be surprised if she did the same here as she did back then. I beg your pardon. I was located elsewhere, my brain reflecting on other intangible matters. I imagined I sounded very rude. The car. She went on, the words slipping out of the painted slit of her mouth, which revolted me. That's the, the way he went. The other... Her first, first one, your father. But she got no further, because that was when my uncle stepped in, apologising on behalf of his wife's typical indulgence before steering her away with force. I had had too much booze myself, so I thought little more of this episode until I'd seen everyone out and was alone. But whatever it had meant didn't trouble me for long. I went to bed early that evening, the noises in the building clearly its ancient structure yielding to elements which the world could well live without. It was a few days later before I realised that this property might not actually be mine. I'd had no success contacting any of Arnold's relatives. He'd been an only child, one of his office colleagues had revealed, and both his parents were dead. The mock line might just as well have ended as he did. Nevertheless, if there was one tool for drawing the long lost from its hypocritical retreat, it was a will. I wasn't very old, but I'd grown cynical, and had expected more than just a few friends and myself in the solicitor's office that bright day in June. However, I was wrong. This was indeed all who showed up, and the crusty old professional behind his pompous desk cleared his throat extravagantly in advance of opening the file to report distribution of the spoils. In fact, this reading had been delayed by a prolonged investigation by the police into the ostensibly accidental deaths. A thorough examination of the crashed car had revealed two sets of fingerprints on the steering wheel. Nothing unusual about that, the inspector concluded, though apparently I'd said something which had made him think again. I'd mentioned that my mum hadn't been able to drive. Now why should her hand have been on the leather wheel at all? The dabs which matched my mum's had been towards the passenger seat side, as if, while the vehicle had been guided along the straight road, she'd reached across to interfere. At any rate, nothing came of the inquiry, and the legal proceedings had lumbered on. Notwithstanding a few trinkets of appreciation to people Arnold Mock had worked with, I got everything, the house, the Jaguar, and the whole of his personal savings, £220,000. My mum left me £3,000 and a note which read, There is nothing else. Be a good man. Speculation as to what on earth this meant was quickly driven out by the conditions of my inheritance. I was never to sell the house, even though the mortgage had been paid off a decade before. That suited me well, since I did like the place. And now, with all the money, anticipation of what I might do intoxicated me. After returning home in the afternoon, it occurred to me that I was probably one of the most eligible young men in the area. This knowledge was mixed with guilt, of course, and I found myself apologising inside my home to both my late mother and her strange, benevolent husband, who just turned my life on its head. Indeed, before sleeping that night, I didn't even glance at the photograph of my dad in the book I kept by my bed. These two men, him and Arnold's, 
seemed to vie posthumously for my affection. I'm afraid I didn't consider my mom at all in the matter. Not so soon, anyway. My imagination was, in fact, filled with many other women. The first I brought home was a chubby girl from the library's audio department, whose attention I'd previously been avoiding for months. Whether this was because I'd have been embarrassed introducing her to my mum, or rather because I didn't really find her attractive, I wasn't certain, but in my new financial position, I reckoned I had nothing to lose. I was hardly photogenic myself, plump, slightly balding, a tad bedraggled from all the beer I drank. During one late summer evening, we were making out on the couch. We'd been dating for three weeks, during which I'd awfully deployed cash, and it was obvious that she was now eager to ascend to the more physical plane. I led her upstairs, by passing the main bedroom as we stripped frenetically. Though when she saw the single bed I was offering, she laughed and made a move next door, but I prevented her furiously. She soon left in a flood of pathetic tears. For some unfathomable reason, I couldn't have anyone in there. It wouldn't have been right, not doing that, where they had. The next girl, my money charmed back to the building, was thinner, closer to my type, but blonde and with blue eyes. I'd met her in a pricey club away from the city. I'd passed my driving test at her first attempt and was taking Arnold's big car here and there. She was a student from the psychology department of the University of Leeds. On this occasion, I made sure the lounge was cosy, and it was following a few strong drinks that we got down to it. We'd removed the great majority of our clothing when I realised that something wasn't right, and I immediately projected the cause of my impotence onto my visitor. She was overtly tanned. Her hair was too long. I didn't like her gold digging. She replied that she'd never had a man droop on her before, that I had some major issues to address, and that a psychiatrist might be in order. I responded to this at once by propelling her out and into a taxi. Nevertheless, I was soon quickly seeking to dispel the possibilities she planted in my brain. It was less than a week later when I brought my perfect partner into the house. I'd specifically selected this one, that is, paid for her. Yes, she was a prostitute, yet the kind for whom one has to contact an agency. I'd described my requirements in precise detail, tallish, slender, dark eyes and short hair, flesh the inimitable hue of mother's milk. When she tapped at my door, I opened up and received a genuine fright. It hadn't been a stranger standing there, rather someone I knew. But who? My mind whirling, I invited her in anyway. Her features caught in the soft light, and then my earlier impression faded. We quickly advanced upstairs, she watching me over one shoulder while she strayed ahead. Her skin really was pale, to such a degree that I was worried she might be involved with serious drugs. I was certainly anxious as she led me to the entrance of the master bedroom, and I was just about to protest when something horrible happened. She got no further than rotating the handle before she shuddered lightly, an act which rendered my penis an incorrigible ramrod, but soon she ducked away, visibly terrified. It's not right here, she told me retreating and immediately developing bizarre facial expressions, as if she was experiencing some kind of flashback. And in less than a minute, she was gone. So, a person, however mentally deranged, wouldn't stay here even for a handsome fee. Drastic measures clearly needed to be taken. Due to the clause in the will, I couldn't sell the building, but I could alter it. Therefore, the best alternative was to decorate thoroughly. I arranged for workmen to come in and strip away all the furnishings. Then one autumn afternoon, I was in the kitchen, flipping through some wallpaper charts, when I heard these guys sniggering on the first floor. I went up at once to find a bunch of them crouching around what had been Arnold's wardrobe. Amid so many splinters of wood, a compartment was intact under the floorboards. There were sex tools stored within the small hidey hole. Realising at once what my hired staff must be thinking... I dismissed them all early before sitting to examine the deviant booty. There was a whip, its long tongue lapping. Two sets of handcuffs had pieces of timber clinging to their rings. And here was an enormous rubber dildo. I scooped all the contents into bags, but as the evening settled, curiosity got the better of me. The demolition hadn't yet reached my mum's side of the wardrobes. 
and I was suddenly obsessed by what I might locate under her panels. Just one item, the journal. A thick, heavy tomb. I found this at the foot of a box, which also contained a clutch of photographs. Some of me as a child, one of my grandma, and others whose subjects were unknown. But I was keener to read the book. I parted the covers with self-reproach. These were secrets I was accessing, of a woman not six months in her grave, yet I couldn't stop myself. Maybe I would finally chance upon something pertinent about my ancestry. The entries were intermittent, seemingly inscribed during periods of distress. Here on the first page was a concern about me being fatherless. How will my son turn out? Not like him, surely. Richard's free of the influence now. I have done the right thing. I have. So this was penned just after my dad had died. Indeed, the date and the heading would age me at about five or six. I skimmed forwards, registering similarly fretful commentary about my development. Delicate health, new habits, willful solitude. Then I found a piece I could relate to directly. And it shivered in the silent old house. Today, Richard asked for a picture of him. He'd been nagging me a lot. If only he knew. If only I could tell him. And I had to find him one just to shut him up. It won't harm, will it? Oh, I must believe that. Too right, the only snapshot I could locate was taken in a pub. Still, better there and drinking than here and... She ended the sentence midway deliberately. What did that imply? I paged on, eventually halting at a section which seemed brighter. The pen hadn't scarred the page so vehemently. The writing looked less fraught. He's a nice man, sober and quiet, unlike him. He's ten years older than me, but at this stage I can't afford to be choosy. Surely he'll be good for Richard too. That's my priority. There's a certain tension in the home, though that'll mend. They just need to get to know one another. Perhaps by continuing to work, I might leave them together, so they can share some time to bond. Would that be wise? My bedroom appeared to cluster shadows around me. The text was about to take a terrible plunge. I simply knew it, and after turning only once, I was proved right. There hasn't been an entry herein for some time. That's because I haven't wanted to admit it even to myself. A few weeks ago, he, not the original him, I'm calling the new one he, brought home an item for the bedroom. What had I imagined? An ornament? Foolish bitch. I've been here before. Well, at least he asked before doing such things to me. Do I have to play along to protect Richard? Or is it already too late? Surely it doesn't follow that since the appetite of he is similar to that of him with regard to me, then he would go as far as him with regard to. I can't write it. I'll have to do something else. Maybe the same something I did back then. I'll be looking for justifiable evidence. Oh yes. Oh yes. My hand functioned quite autonomously. He's been paying far too much attention recently. The trip last year to Bruges, the shared room, the drinking, the hand about the shoulder was one thing. But now he plans to buy him a car, offer him driving lessons. What's he up to? Surely Richard's safe at nigh on eighteen. Might he be genuine? I've seen his gratifying will, after all. Can he afford to offer benefit of the doubt? I'm old and tired. The nights grow demanding and degrading. I can never leave this house without revealing too much. I tried only the other night, and Richard didn't. Couldn't understand. I'll hide this document to serve as a confession. Maybe one day it'll be found when he's old enough to understand. The vehicle it is, then. This time. Both of us. That was her final contribution. I placed the book aside and took up the pictures. One showing a young woman alert and hopeful. It was with an unpleasant jolt that I realised this must be my mum before she'd had me, prior to meeting my dad and Arnold Mock, two men who, by the present account, had combined to destroy her. But had she in fact taken them both along with her to save me? I might have helped, 
yet I'd known nothing, and there wouldn't be another opportunity. I recall thumping the bed that evening, an outpouring of grief which I'd possibly been repressing. I slotted the photo of my mum in my favourite book and screwed up the picture of my dad, tossing it out with the litter which was the last remaining evidence of my stepfather. His property appalled me now, and soon I was out in his loathsome car, a necessity just then, though I'd replace it soon, and driving. I needed to get away quickly. Whereabouts it didn't matter. However, the motorway seemed to tug me towards Hull. From there, the dockside, where I was able to secure a ticket on a Belgium-bound ferry. Yes, there'd been one day in recollectable memory during which I'd been happy. My single item of luggage, the ghostly anthology. I fell asleep naked during the crossover, my dreams consisting of a solitary girl in a room, staring at me plaintively, as speechless as a corpse. I awoke early, my head full of vague speculation. I dressed and alighted, clambering into the coach which would take me to Bruges. The slow trundle across so much flat land brought ideas racing to the surface of my reeling brain. Had Arnold Mock left me his house and money as a way of apology? The suggestions my mum had made between the lines of his sorrowful prose were unthinkable. I had to bring out that image of her just to suppress attendant thoughts. But it was no good. The question rose unbidden, directly from the heart of me. Had I been abused by my father, and had my stepfather wanted to do the same? Bastards! I wept. As I advanced into the town, I recalled more words. My mum's note on her will. There was nothing else. Be a good man. I hadn't understood this at my first reading. It had surely been simultaneously the suicide note of a murderer, and a plea for me not to repeat the original crimes. I tossed the short stories with its aching occupant into a bin in front of a church, and then hurried on the better to end all my hurt. I was suddenly in an unreal place. I would know what I desired when I saw it again. Why had I fled on that previous occasion, approximately three years ago to the day? What with my hangover that distant morning, the event had seemed supernatural. In fact, as I searched the streets for the lane beyond the bandstand, my memories remained fractured. The shop had been unlike anything I'd ever witnessed before. Three rooms piled on top of one another. There'd been no till point and no proprietor, except for that glorious figure on the second floor, as well as an altogether more enigmatic presence on the upper level. Was this why I'd departed so swiftly? Knowledge that the daughter was underage, while her father prowled above? Now, however, the girl would be legal and independent, and I might use my honed wiles to attract her. Oh, I realise that such reasoning sounds crazy. One has to appreciate my state of mind as I relocated that book and wine store. I immediately charged towards the entrance, excitement allaying the chill of the cruel, rough air outside. I hadn't gazed as high as the third window up, because the sign above the door had caught my attention. Electra, it said, a foreign reference I was unable to interpret. So I went inside. The showroom on the ground was much as I remembered, though dustier, as if no one had troubled the cloth since my last visit. The stock, creaky volumes with leather spines, innumerable chunky carafes, hadn't stirred at all, or so it appeared to me. Again, there was nobody about, save for shadows playing in the corners, dust motes twirling in daylight. Hastily, I assailed the tarnished spiral staircase, thumping up in a full circle to reach the next floor. The framed photographs were still on display, Presumably the same subjects gazed across time and space, transcending death, decomposition, or maybe worse. The only difference I could perceive was the absence of any chains on the floorboards. But then I heard one stir behind me, and as my heart drummed wildly, I turned to address the formidable source of this sound. The pretty girl I'd seen on my first adventure here had grown into a beautiful woman, she was perhaps sixteen or seventeen, her clothing more becoming of a mature outlook. She was dressed in a blouse buttoned modestly to her neckline, pushed out of shape by considerable breasts. Her skirt emphasised the curves of her hips, terminating at the level of her shapely knees. 
She wasn't wearing tights. Her pale shin flesh mimicked that of her face. Her broad eyes and neat bob were an identical brown to that of a pair of low-heeled shoes. Yet I didn't wish to glance down there, nor back at her head, which appeared inexpressibly terrified. Her arms waved to each side, but this didn't claim my attention either. So it was top or bottom, and as was my usual wont, I let matters fall. The silver links of her shackle encircled one ankle, the further end bolted to a fixing on the wall. She'd been attached by a chain to the property. Then I stared at her anew. She was who I'd come for, and damn any consequences. However, I was just about to speak when, her lips twitching like dying worms, she beat me to this act. Help me, she pleaded, her accent wholly English. It reminded me of exactly what her appearance had, the picture of my mum I'd just discarded. They won't let me go. I've tried, I've protested, I've wandered around aimlessly forever, but they won't let me go. And she shook her restraint with violent frustration. Something about either this gesture or her words had deflected my focus to the left. I simply wasn't able to assimilate her subdued panic on her use of the plural with regard to who I could only assume must be her parents. Indeed, as I observed the mirror on the wall through the vacant doorway, I heard light footsteps above the ceiling. Was someone creeping about up there? Perhaps the man was out of his seat. But no, the chair remained in front of the window, that familiar plump, hairy arm sloshing the bronze spirit at the bottom of his scooped receptacle. So who was pacing out of view? Suddenly, a shadow fell over the figure near the glass. Would this be the wicked mother? Every bit as unfeeling as her husband? Had she endorsed by inaction the act of locking up their adult daughter? A piece of starved skin soon encroached on the reflection, feeling for the back of the seat, an effet hand. And that was when the woman before me shocked me to the core. Save me, Richard, she said, and her voice now sounded so much like my mother's that I began to shake ruthlessly. She was crying loudly. It might have been despair which lent her expression such a vicious leer. I want you to do it. You want to do it. Save me. Take me. The implications of this, and of the tread which had ceased above, its resonance growing deeper in those inaccessible regions of the brain where all the monstrous facts lurk, was so horrid that I flew at once, down the twisted flight, across the main chamber to the exit and then outside. Already at this age I was in a poor condition. My fat, beery body wobbled and stirred. Nevertheless, I managed to scurry over the deserted precinct, spin on my heel, stare up at a higher section of the building, and force another breath from my instantly stunned posture. Seated at the top window, drawing the beverage to his mouth, was my dad. Behind him, at his shoulder, stood Arnold Mock. One was rising, the other turning, presumably to go down. From within, I heard a frenzied rattle of chains. And I just ran and ran, because I could never know whether they would be satisfied with her or were coming after me. And that was The Familial by Gary Fry, and was read to us by Jason Stubbs. He was born in Staffordshire, England, moved to America in 2000 to continue his career as an electronic engineer. Married with two boys and one girl, he lives in a suburb of the Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas metroplex. Hobbies include movies, video games, mountain biking, American craft beer, and motorsports. And he makes the distinction that's Formula One, not NASCAR. He enjoys reading sci-fi and horror fiction stories and started listening to podcast audio stories when his commute to work took over an hour each way. Scott Sigler and J.C. Hudgens fueled his addiction, forcing him to search for more podcasts as his addiction grew. And that will be our evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining me at the Nook for Tales to Terrify. We'll see you again next week, and pleasant dreams.
Tales to Terrify is looking for an editor. And I thought that I would let the listeners know what does an editor for Tales to Terrify do? The primary duties are, one, evaluate stories submitted to the podcast Gmail account for quality. Two, pair accepted stories with appropriate narrators. And three, maintain the show's Google Doc spreadsheet with status of stories. Just for the sake of clarity, this podcast is a labor of love, and no one gets paid, including the editor. For myself, the... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Roll took up about one afternoon a week. If you have interest in helping out the podcast or further questions about the specifics, please send me an email at tales to terrify at gmail.com.